Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 1045 a.m. and 5 p.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Man, we are privileged, aren't we? I don't know if you're just paying attention to what just happened, but I can remember listening to a uh, southern preacher. He was an evangelist, and uh, somebody was asking him, what's your stance on transubstantiation or consubstantiation? And he goes, man, those words are really big. He says, I don't know about any of those things. He says, I'm just worried about getting men and women, boys and girls to fall in love with Jesus and be with him forever. That's what I'm concerned about. Those other big theological terms, I can't wrap my mind around. Well, we just witnessed that, folks. It's not about age. We saw somebody young get saved. Amen? And it's not about the home that you were brought up in. We saw somebody that's set free after a life that had been a prison. And set free even though they grew up in a Christian home and the realization that uh, they needed Jesus the same as anybody else in the world. All of them uh, equal at the foot of the cross. What an awesome thing. We're going to look at uh, a moment that makes the same declaration, Acts chapter 9 this morning, before we all participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, uh, the conversion of uh, who is popularly known as Paul, uh, and this moment that is really central. There were two men, Lord uh, Littleton and Gilbert West, two lawyers in England who were having a debate. They were agnostics. They did not like Christianity. In fact, they were irritated by the claims of all of these evangelists that were having so much sway in England. And they came to the conclusion, if we could get rid of the belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we could prove that that was fake, we would put a nail in the coffin of Christianity. But we also need to cause everyone to believe that the conversion of Saul, the conversion of the man that would become known as Paul, was also fake because these are two great pillars. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the foundation of our faith. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. Who said that? Paul, the great theologian of the New Testament. If you could get rid of these two people, they thought, if we could destroy their testimony or proof, then uh, Christianity would fall. And so they endeavored to divide the task. Uh, Gilbert West Uh, attacked the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Littleton uh, attacked the conversion of Saul. They began to gather their notes. They began to do all of their studying, and they came back together, and sheepishly, as they began to meet, they both looked at each other and said, you know what, I've actually been putting together all of the details. I believe I'm becoming convinced against my own previous understanding. Littleton's saying, I, I actually believe that Saul was converted the way that he said that he was. And West said, I, I think Jesus Christ rose from the grave. They come to Christ in the process. And they write two long-standing books, these two lawyers, actually proving that Christ rose from the grave and that Saul was converted the way Scripture says that he was. They couldn't be convinced of anything different. Acts chapter 9 puts one of those two pillars on display. 
Let's start with uh, verse 1. Stand and read this passage together. Remember the last time that we saw Saul, he is uh, receiving the coats of all the men who are stoning Stephen. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord sent him a vision. Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. By the way, I think that's one of the most ironic verses right there in all of Acts. Go into the place called Straight, a place of the house of Judas, and look for a man named Saul, another Judas who we're going to turn straight. And he sees in a vision a man named Ananias coming and laying his hands upon him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Do you believe that actually happened? Amen. It did. You may be seated. Father, once again, we come before you and we give thanks. Um, we thank you for testimonies like the ones we have just witnessed. We thank you for testimonies like the ones recorded in Scripture with Saul. Father, we pray that uh, you would open our eyes. There are some sitting in this room this morning who still need the scales to fall. They've heard what they think is the truth. They've even been around the gospel, but they have yet to yield. There are some of us, Father, who though you have removed the scales from our eyes, you've not removed the scales from our heart. We still are unwilling to see that you can transform. Help us to rejoice in the fact that you can transform somebody from wicked to a saint. You are the one that transforms the individual. We praise you for this. 
We give you praise for the evidence of it, and we ask that you'd help us to look at this closely this morning and then adjust our thinking accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James Montgomery Boyce, writing about this passage, said, We should be greatly encouraged by the fact that God saved Saul. God turned this great persecutor of the early Christians into the first great missionary. He took the man who had been doing the most harm to the church and turned him into the man who did the most to build it up. If God could do that with Saul, God can do that same thing today. If you have a son or daughter who you are worried about, a child who is off somewhere not serving the Lord, a husband or a wife who is unconverted, keep praying for him or her. God can and frequently does do something remarkable. Do you believe it? He does. I want us to look at these moments right here in Acts chapter 9 through the eyes of Ananias. What is it like for this man to receive a vision and say, I want you to go to the worst persecutor of the church, the guy who's most likely to kill you, and give him some love on my behalf? Can you imagine that dream in the middle of the night? Ananias is getting up and he's looking at his kippered fish, wondering if maybe something has uh, struck him wrong, right? Is this really a vision or did I eat something? Lord, do you really want me to go to this man? Do you know who that is? God says he does. And he goes to him and I want us to consider what does it take to be this kind of agent of change on behalf of the Lord? Four things I want you to note. First, an agent of change must believe in forgiveness. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. His intent was to kill them. Skip Heitzig, when he was talking about this passage, um, notes that if you are trying to look for the cleanest place to live in the world, and, and we're obsessed with cleanliness, aren't we? Especially in the United States. We got more things to spritz on you, wash things down with, worry about than anyone else. Uh, coronavirus, man, there's nobody going outside for another year, right? We're just all freaked out about germs. You wanna go to the place that is the most germ-free in all of the world, one of those places on the top 10 list every single time is Antarctica. It's one of the most germ-free places to live. Real estate's cheap. <laughs> what they noticed was the colder your surroundings, the more sanitized your environment. But the more cold and sanitized your environment, it also is more inhospitable. An inhospitable heart dwells in a cold and sanitized environment. Saul was trying to sanitize his entire world. He was trying to make sure that everything that he looked at, everything that he believed was easy and he could put it in the box of a certain uh, set of beliefs. The thing was, he didn't actually consult God. He didn't consider what God said, this is how uh, I would have them live. He was persecuting those who were of the way, as it was earliest uh, known. Before they were known as Christians in the church, they were known as the way. And Saul was doing whatever he could to rub them out. He's breathing fire, even though he has ice in his personality. No one wanted to be around Saul. I think the high priest probably gave him papers because they were excited to see him leave. 
Have you ever met somebody who is on your most unlikely to believe list? Do you have a list of people like that in your mind? A neighbor, a family member, somebody in the community, somebody that's out in the world, and you say in your heart, there's no possible way they would ever give their life to Christ. Saul was at the apex of that list, folks. The most unlikely to give his life to Jesus Christ. I can remember um, that little old guy that used to come up down here on a regular basis, Tommy Skipper. Anybody remember him? He was uh, just the most wonderful, wonderful evangelist. And he would always come and he always had some word for us, right? He'd just been reading in scripture. His context was always a little older than whatever the current technology was. So I remember he came into the office one day and he yells out, what's faster than a fax machine, right? And we're all trying to remember what is a fax machine. <laughs> but he says it's the, the word of God. Even before there was a, a thought in your head, I have responded. He starts quoting scripture. And he would call me up on a regular basis and he would say, Justin, People are dying to hear the gospel. Will you join me? They're dying to hear it. And he would go into Mexico, Central America. He could speak uh, Spanish uh, with all the, the dialect and inflection of a local wherever he went, from there down through uh, Argentina. He had it nailed, but he wanted to share the gospel. He would say to us every single time we got together, every person that you see is a candidate for heaven. Everyone that you see, tell them about Jesus. I can remember one time we're at this uh, restaurant and Tommy just grabs our hands. He throws them up in the air and he goes, this is how we pray. And he starts to pray and then he looks at me and he starts laughing. He said, he said I was just testing you. <laughs> but he was demonstrative. He wanted everyone to know about Jesus. Every waiter that we ever ran into would hear the gospel. Handful of hope from Tommy Skipper. Do you believe that anyone is a candidate for heaven? Saul was. God had not abandoned hope with Saul. In fact, he had an intention for him all along. You've got to believe in forgiveness if you're going to be an agent of change. But there's a second thing here. An agent of change will encounter fierce opposition. Verse 4 says, He went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you, Lord? Who are you, master? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul had political protection when he was on the road. He had religious zeal, and he had the original license to kill. He was the first 007, right? He could go, drag people off, kill them, and he was protected by anyone around. He had uh, citizenship in Rome, so if he was acting... In an aggressive manner, Rome would not treat him the same way that he would just some other average uh, Jewish zealot. Paul was on the road and there was nothing that could stop him. They give him papers because they want this way destroyed. And he was angry and going to take it on. C.H. Spurgeon notes that uh, Saul comes riding into Damascus on a high, high horse, and it just took a moment for God to knock him down. He comes in on his high horse, the Lord levels him and points out to him that he is not acting the way that he was supposed to act. 
In Acts 26, uh, in fact, his testimony is so profound, it comes up three times in the book of Acts. But in Acts 26, Paul, as he changes his name to, uh, begins to recount for Agrippa one of the moments uh, that he remembers in his conversion. So he doesn't tell us it here. In fact, the indication from Luke is that he's gathering this information from the men that were on the trip with him. But Paul is on the road, and he's already conflicted. He says that he heard the voice from heaven, and it said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. If you remember what a goad is, they would take an animal that was unwilling to go the right direction, and they would have a sharp pointing stick that they would jam into its flank. The idea is that the animal, being irritated at being jabbed, would not want to keep turning that direction. But Saul was not like any old animal. So every single time that he was dragging people out of their homes and he was listening to their confession of Jesus Christ and he was getting ready to kill them in front of the rest of their family and he was authorizing people to stone them and he was rejoicing in all of their destruction, in his heart, every single time, there is this sharp, poking stick from God saying, you know this testimony's right. You know that what you're doing is wrong. You know that you shouldn't be here. You know that this is not the answer. And he was kicking against it and kicking against it, and the goad was coming, poking him, prodding him, pushing him to go a new direction. He was already conflicted. In fact, it says here, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you notice that? It doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting these Christians? Or even, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes the persecution of his people personally. When you get saved, you're not just an individual wandering around that has a loose belief in Jesus Christ. You are part of the body of Christ. You are his. Doesn't matter where you are. You can get separated off by the world. You can get stuck in prison for your faith. You can be all kinds of different distances from other believers, but you are part of the body. And anything that happens to you in opposition to Jesus Christ, Christ takes personally as if it is happening to him. Because it is. You are part of his body. You'll encounter fierce opposition, but Jesus sees you as valuable. Agent of change needs to believe in forgiveness. They need to understand that they will encounter fierce opposition, but also an agent of change must have a submissive faith. It says in verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. By the way, that's a good way to respond. We see that all the way back in the book of Samuel, don't we? Here's the Lord three different times in the night. Finally, Eli realizes what's going on. He says, hey, just say, here I am, and listen to the rest of the message. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he's praying. You think? Imagine what would be going on in your mind if you saw a vision get knocked off the horse, your blind get led to this place and said, God's going to meet you here. I think you would pray too, right? 
I don't know what was going through Ananias' mind, but this had to be one of the scariest encounters that he could have. Not only is God appearing to him in a vision, but he has to go to this man who is prosecuting, attacking, persecuting all believers. E. Stanley Jones tells a story when he had been over in the Middle East. Actually, he was working in India for part of that time. And there's a caste system in India, but they still, when they came to faith, they had a, a group, a, a location where they would all gather. And he said, you each need to make sure that you get a day off. And so every single person that was working on there had uh, equal amount of time. They were all treated equally because we're all the same in Christ. Amen. And yet there were some peace, people from different caste systems that would not do certain jobs. And uh, it came time for the latrine duty each week to be taken care of. And this is before flush toilets. And so all of the imagination can run wild with what that duty entailed. So here is this individual who has been given a break that was normally part of the class of people that would just uh, sweep the streets. They were used to the filth. And he had a day off. And E. Stanley Jones goes to another man that was part of a different cast, and he says, hey, it's time for you to cover your brother's latrine duty. And he says, uh, Brother Stanley, I am converted, but I'm not sure that I've been converted that far. <laughs> I'm not sure I can do it. That's just with being able to scrub toilets. Well, let me ask you, how far does your conversion go? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you believe that God actually transforms the lives of the hard to reach? If so, what is God asking you to do that you have not submitted to? Where has he asked you to go? Is it a certain attitude that you have? Is it a certain thing that you participate in? Is it a certain location that he has asked you to go to? Has the Lord been prompting you to take part in one of the short-term missions, to learn how to share your faith and pray about what he would use you to do here back home? Has he been calling you to full-time ministry? Has he been asking you to participate in a different way in the world around you, to disciple those who need discipleship? What has the Lord asked you to do? Ananias does the most amazing thing. As soon as he is confronted, he says, Lord, what would you have? You know the guy? God says, I know him. He goes, I got it. I'll go. Warren Wearsby records about a moment uh, in Ningpo, China, where the group that was there, a group of missionaries, had encountered a man who they called Mr. Nye. And Mr. Nye was learning about Jesus. He gave his life to Christ, and he had been transformed. And he began to ask the missionaries, how long have you had this truth? This truth is amazing. It is transforming my life. I no longer feel that there is this weight and this burden upon me. I no longer feel the shame that I've been told to feel. I've been set free by Christ. How long have you known these truths? And they said to him, well, we've had this truth for centuries. And his face fell and he looked at them and he said, well, my dad died searching for answers like this, how come you did not come sooner? Why didn't you come just 20 years earlier, 10 years earlier, where he could have heard this amazing truth? What is it that is causing you to resist the Holy Spirit's push in your life to say, will you go to 
the least of these, or the worst of these, or the lost. Go and tell means you leave your shell. We in the United States like to put up a good crust, don't we? We come to our faith and we just kind of lock ourselves away. God wants to use us and he wants to use you in a way that may be uncomfortable to you, but it'll be glorious to him. It'll glorify his name. You must have a submissive faith. But the final thing that I see in this passage is that an agent of change must extend fellowship. Look at verse 17. It says, so Ananias, after this little debate with the Lord and uh, the revelation that Saul is going to have to suffer on his behalf, it is... Uh, um, showing us what the rest of the book would entail. It says, So Ananias departed and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you have came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. There is a transformation that we see here, and there is a significant moment. Ken uh, Wilman is a guy, he said he was uh, one day walking on the beach, and his dog is running out ahead of him, and all of a sudden it sniffs out this rock, and uh, they keep trying to drag the dog away, but it was just really interested in this rock. Kept going back over there, kept grabbing it, kept gnawing on this rock, and he's like, man, I better grab that thing, and it's just uh, seven pound like boulder that's sitting there. So he picks it up, but as soon as he picks it up, he smells it. And he said, it smelled nasty. That is a horrifying thing. No wonder the dog was trying to roll on it, you know, do what dogs do. He, uh, he puts it on the internet. He puts the picture out there and he asks people, uh, what is this rock? I can't identify it. What is this thing that my dog wants so badly to roll on? And he found out that it was whale vomit. It's actually called ambergris, right? But there's something that happened. All of a sudden, he starts getting people calling him saying, I'll pay you money for that ambergris and uh, finds out that it is used by perfumers, right? Somebody in here is wearing whale vomit, by the way. <laughs> They've transformed it, don't worry. But what they say is that actually as soon as it gets hit by the sun, the sun transforms it from that nasty smell of whale vomit into something that is beautiful and that you want to have filling the room. It is all transformed by the heat of the sun. This is a moment where somebody is transformed by the sun from somebody who was just filled with bile and he gets called brother. He gets transformed from Saul the angry man to Paul, the apostle. And all of it was, was the light of the sun. He gets transformed. So why in the world does he have to wait three days? Saul's been breathing threats and murders. In fact, even though he has an entourage, it seems like it's all Saul, right? When we think about him going out and attacking, we think it's just him. There's a whole group of people that were actually with him, but Saul's taking the glory. He's attacking the people. He's doing stuff on his own. Why couldn't Saul just fall to his knees and then get baptized, right? Because it's no longer about Saul. It's about fellowship. It's about being received by recognized brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about being a part of the body. You're persecuting me, he says. You don't know that all of these 
people that are out there aren't just disparate parts. They're part of one body. And Saul, you just joined it. You sit right here. I'm sending one of the brothers to call you brother. Now, some have noted, many different people, they've noticed this statement, brother Saul, right? And the question comes, how did he actually say that? Did he say, brother Saul, the Lord who has appeared to you? Or did he say, brother? And he's looking to see if he has a whip, you know, or a sword. (laughs) I think, brother. I think Ananias went in boldly. Brother Saul, you need to hear that you're part of the family. Brother Saul, you need to know that you're loved. Brother Saul, you need to know you're no longer that guy. Welcome to the family. Three days. By the way, that number of days comes up consistently in Scripture, and it should always shock and amaze us. There is new life on the other side of three days. He was received, and he was baptized. He regained his sight. He took food, and it says he was strengthened. God consistently operates through relationship. He uses men and women transformed by him to receive us. Typically, on a baptism service, we'll make sure that at the end, those that are baptized find some way to receive fellowship. In the old days, we used to just call everybody up here. If we have time to be able to do that at transition, we'll do that uh, again. But uh, we want to make sure that they feel welcome. One of the ways they can do that, though, is they look out into this audience as they are making that declaration of faith and they see wet eyes and soft hearts. It's still awesome to see people get baptized. Isn't it true? They give their life to Jesus and make that declaration. God wanted Saul to have the scales fall off his eyes and he went blind following his way. He regains his sight as he was received into fellowship. It's the same for us. We need to extend fellowship. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper right now. And what this moment demands is that we um, take what we have learned in Scripture, the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that we have given our life to Jesus, and we reflect on our position. We've seen what happened with Saul. Saul gives his life to Christ. Saul experiences transformation. Saul gets received into this fellowship. That is his story, but what is yours? There are a few things that I want you to think about. We rejoice in the transformation of Saul. He would deal with that for the rest of his life. He would look at the Lord, even given a thorn in the flesh at one point in time, because the things that he had learned about God were so magnificent. God says, I just want to make sure you don't get proud. Do you know that we, along the journey, all need to be tweaked at times, right? Is there an area in your life right now that the Lord is tweaking you, asking you to submit, bring your life back in underneath his control? This is the time to confess it. There's nothing magical or mystical about participating in the Lord's Supper, this moment where we take these two elements, bread and the cup, a picture of the body of Christ and his blood that was shed for us, the price to spend eternity with him, and also the price that was paid in order for us to participate in the body. These are symbols. 
But we participate in these symbols, it says, so that we can remember his death, burial, and resurrection. We can remember what is central. We're not a part of what we need to remember. He doesn't say so you can remember you. He says so you will remember me. We can get off track. So we take a few moments to center our hearts. Paul had three days where he was blind and he was thinking about the transformation that needed to happen. We get a few moments where we close our eyes and say, Lord God, will you investigate my heart? Here's what I want you to do. We're going to bow our heads, close our eyes. We're going to take a few moments to consider. But I want you to make this commitment. If there is anything between you and the Lord, confess that in your heart. If there's anything between you and another brother or sister in Christ, you, as you're getting ready to take this cup, you commit before the Lord that you're going to go to that person. You're going to confess that problem, your side of it. Don't confess their sin for them. Confess yours against them. And you make it right. These are times that God uses to keep things clean. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, investigate your heart right now. Is there anything between you and the Lord? Father God, we come before you right now and we do ask. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to investigate our own hearts, to consider what it is that you are doing within us. Father, you died. You sent Christ to die, be buried, and rise again on the third day so that we would be set free. And you ask that we would reflect on those things. The transformation that comes from that, for sure, but the cost. This was your love put on display for us. So we ask that you would help us to do this moment with clean hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.